This is the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew, and um, I'm one of the pastors at Mountain Park. We are diving right into our study through the book of James. This is an overview, not a, not a verse-by-verse sort of um, exegetical study per se, but a survey of the major themes and um, ideas found in the book of James. We are... Uh, doing something a little bit different in this first two episodes. This is going to be James part 1A, and next we have James part 1B. The reason is that our live recording didn't work that week, so I re-recorded it in my office, uh, like I am right now, and that recording was like an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes actually, Go figure. So those who know me are like, yep, I, that's that's totally Andrew. Anyway, so we decided to split that up. So this is James part 1A, and I will see you back for the beginning of James part 1B. Welcome to another week in the life of our church and just in what God is doing in us and uh, through us wherever you're listening to this from, and whatever you're doing right now, wherever you are, we consider it a privilege to spend these moments together with you. Today is going to be a little bit different, and um, we had another glitch on Sunday, so our recording from our live service didn't work, um, which in some ways is a bummer, but in others um, is exciting. I'm actually much more comfortable right now than I usually am uh, preaching live. I'm in my office. It's Tuesday, beautiful day in Niagara here. And um, I'm in my cozy chair. I've got a, uh, a few nice chairs in my office. So I pulled one of them up to my desk. I'm sitting back in it. I've got my notes in front of me. And um, the best part is I'm not stressed about time. If you get super bored with this in five minutes, or maybe you're already sick of this, you could just turn it off. And uh, I won't know, so I won't be offended. And um, I'm not preoccupied with looking at a clock right now like I would be preaching live. And I'm not staring out at a bunch of people that I'm trying to prophetically discern as to whether they are dying inside and ready to go to Swiss LA for lunch. I don't know. This is great. So maybe we'll do this more often. I'm not sure. Sunday was, um, it was an adventurous morning to say the least. And part of what I really wish we had recorded was the whole beginning interaction uh, between me and the church. And specifically because of uh, a little event that happened for me on Saturday. So on Saturday, uh, we had uh, some friends, some guests from out of town that were with us. It was an awesome weekend. We, like we usually do when we have guests over, we bought a bunch of red meat and uh, I was cooking over the fire. We were smoking some food. And um, so anyway, I, I uh, bit into a, a chicken wing and um, I have veneers on uh, a few of my front teeth. One of my veneers uh, flew off. It, it, it fell out, 
And uh, so I lost my tooth. That was Saturday uh, around dinner time. And I had a bit of a moment of panic. Like I've, I've, actually, I've actually had nightmares, I think, at different times of me losing my veneers, like losing all of my teeth on a Saturday and then having to get up and speak in front of people. I've, I've literally had dreams about that. And so I had these flashbacks to these dreams that I've had in the past with that. And um, so I texted Pam and Brenda and Alex and I said, hey, um, I, I lost a tooth here tonight um, at dinner. One of you might need to be preaching or, you know, I just want to let you know kind of thing. And um, anyway, none of them offered to preach and none of them sounded overly sympathetic or concerned, which was super annoying. Pam, her response back to me, literally the first thing she said was, was it candy? And uh, I... So she responded back, was it candy? And I was like, how dare you? That is so offensive to me. I texted that back to her. And then I texted back, no, it was chicken wings. Um, (laughs) So anyway, they were making fun of me. Uh, You know, nobody offered to preach. And so I I had to figure out, you know, what to do. I had mentioned to Brenda, you know what, I'm not going to come in early and do the volunteer huddle like normally I would. Um, I was still trying to figure out what I, what I was going to do uh, in terms of speaking, whether I was going to speak with a front tooth missing or how I was going to approach it. Anyway, so I show up at church and everybody's looking at me funny and they're kind of like trying not to be conspicuous, but they're staring sort of at my mouth. And... Um, and I was thinking, man, that's weird. Like at, literally everybody's, some are looking at me with concern. Some are kind of smirking. And I said to one of our volunteers, I said, what did, what did Brenda say to you this morning? And uh, he just kind of chuckled and he said, well, she, she said, you know, you lost a tooth and blah, 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 blah. And, and I thought, all right, well, I guess it's not a private thing anymore. And so I'm going to have to address this in some way. So, and then, uh, you know, I, I, I love being out in the parking lot before uh, church. So I serve out there helping people park, and I love doing that. And um, there was uh, one of our volunteers had a 40th birthday, and so there was a bunch of people from our church that were at this birthday. And as those who were at the birthday started driving in, they were asking me, you know, how my teeth were. And I had texted, um, I had texted this couple on Saturday night. Rochelle and I were planning to be at this birthday, and I said, "Look, like um, I just lost a tooth. I'm not sure what to do. I'm going to try and call my dentist, but anyway, we we unfortunately we can't come. So we weren't at the party, but I did send them a picture of my mouth just as proof. I just I didn't want them to think we were making some kind of excuse and." So anyway, these people who were at the party were driving in and asking, um, you know, how my tooth was. And so I thought, all right. So obviously that picture got shared around. And so when I got up on Sunday morning, I felt I had to address all of that. And I had determined that I was going to try and stick this veneer back on my tooth, my real tooth that was left in its place and try and preach with that. And Rochelle, 
Rochelle, my wife, she was, she was paranoid that I was either going to swallow it um, or spit it out, like that it was going to go flying out into the, you know, the front row of the people who were there. Because we, in our location, um, I, I basically preach on the ground and there's people all around uh, very close. And so she was paranoid. And um, she said, you know, if you leave that in, you're either going to choke on it, you're going to swallow it, you're going to spit it out, or um, or you're going to be so distracted about it. The Holy Spirit's not even going to be able, to, you're not even going to be able to listen to him. You're, you're not going to be able to follow his direction. It's just going to be a disaster. And she's kind of reading me um, her riot act a little bit in the morning. And I just being stubborn, I said, no, no, none of that's going to happen. There's no way any of that's going to happen. It's fine. It's going to be uh, fine. It'll stay in my mouth while I'm speaking and whatever. So I got up, I do this whole preamble, and I begin into the message. Uh, people already think it's, you know, it's been quite a funny morning already. And uh, I get about 10 minutes in, and wouldn't you know it, I'm in the middle of making a passionate point and my tooth comes off right in the middle of this. And so I literally, oh man, I wish you could hear the live recording because that startled me and I stopped and I was like, oh, guys, and I said this to the whole church, my tooth just came off, nobody panic. So I literally put my fingers in my mouth, I grabbed my porcelain veneer out of my mouth and I put it down onto the table that I have my Bible on and my, my notes on. And uh, man, that, that did actually totally throw me for a loop. It, I lost my train of thought and I don't know if I ever recovered from it. But um, anyway, so I preached that message without a front tooth and uh, I got over myself, I guess, my own vanity and my pride. So I wanted to let you guys know that um, just because that was, uh, you know, if you were part of our church family and you were there, it was kind of a, a unfortunately, maybe a big part of the, the morning on that Sunday. So anyway, we are uh, headed into an overview of the book of James. This is a survey. Again, this is not a verse by verse um, inductive uh, kind of study in that way, exhaustive. We're doing a, a survey of the book of James, and um, I think we'll be doing this for about the next 10 uh, weeks. So about the next 10 uh, podcast episodes, we'll be working through this. We're taking a short break for Easter, uh, but other than that, we are, uh, we're in this for the next 10 weeks. And so I want to, uh, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to pray, and um, and then we'll dive into uh, James week one, and uh, we are going to be. You can pull out, you know, your U version app or a Bible. Even now, we're going to be in James one one to eleven for today. So, um, if you are able to, just join me for a moment in prayer as we start this. Jesus. Uh, I just dedicate my life to you. We, we bring ourselves under your leadership, your authority, your covering. Um, we bring ourselves back under covenant with you, under the, the blood of your covenant with us. And uh, we dedicate our lives to you again today. We 
recognize and understand apart from you, um, we, we can't even understand Scripture, Holy Spirit. And so we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to teach and to counsel us. We invite you to bring revelation and insight uh, as we just walk through this whole book, but specifically today, we just we invite your leadership in those ways. We submit ourselves to you, Jesus. We humble ourselves before you. And in Jesus' name, I just command any unholy power um, that is, is present here where I am or present in the lives of those listening or in the spaces where they are to be restrained now. In Jesus' name, I forbid the enemy of God from exercising any unholy power for carrying out any assignments for uh, blocking in any way uh, the revelation that the Holy Spirit wants to bring to us through his word, through James 1, 1 to 11. In Jesus' name, um, we just uh, commit this time and this space we are in physically uh, to the lordship and authority of Jesus. I ask, Father, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that we are doing through this series, we did the same thing in the Revelation series, is um, we're going to read the scripture out loud. Um, these scripture was actually meant to be heard, meant to be listened to more than just kind of reading static words on a page. Scripture was meant to be heard and meant to be listened to specifically meant to be listened to in a community context, not just as an individual exercise. And so each week during this whole study of James, we're going to have different people reading Scripture out loud in front of um, and in the midst of our whole church community. So I'm going to do that now. I want to invite you, if you're able to, just to even close your eyes as I'm reading this, and just allow yourself to hear this. Ask even the Holy Spirit to open your ears to hear from him. Ask him to speak to you through this. This is James 1, 1 to 11. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, which is what, we'll, what we will be using for the entirety of this series. James 1, 1 to 11. This letter is from James a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings, dear brothers and sisters. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when you endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, 
and they are unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like little flowers in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. So one of the things that we need to keep in mind as we are um, processing scripture, as we're diving into it, uh, one of the keys to interpreting scripture properly is understanding uh, context, understanding background. And one of the essentials to understanding context is knowing that James wrote this to real people in a real point in history, and that the book of James or any book in scripture cannot mean for us something that it did not initially mean for those who would have heard it first. It cannot mean something completely different for us than it did to the original hearers. Now, of course, we live in a different context, a much different context, and uh, we believe Scripture is inspired, it's authoritative, and it's living and active, meaning that there are um, absolute um, applications for us in our life today. So something that was written for believers, you know, a few thousand years ago or people a few thousand years ago that had a specific meaning for them, there can also be application for us in our life today. Scripture is not static. The Word of God is not static. It's living and it's active, and it can and will, if we allow it to, it will impact and shape our lives today. It can impose itself on us, which is what we should want it to do. It can impose itself on us and form us and shape us into the image of Christ today even. So James has great application for us today. But we need to first understand the historical context, the background, what was going on around James when he was writing this, the, um, you know, who he was writing it to, and how they would have understood it, what he was trying to communicate to them. And so that is an essential part of understanding uh, Scripture, of interpreting it, and um, we need to just get that straight first. So most likely James was written in the 40s, not the 1940s, but uh, in the, the decade of the 40s in the first century, most likely mid to late 40s. Some scholars would date James in the 60s, and a few, not many, it wouldn't be the large consensus, would maybe date it later, much later than that. But for our intensive purposes, we're going to put... Um, James's dating around the 40s, which would make it the first book written in the New Testament. So James is the, the first book that we have access to. It's the earliest writing that we have access to from the, uh, from the canon of the New Testament that we would have. Um, and so James is writing uh, to his friends, to his contemporaries, uh, to his community, essentially, in uh, the 40s, roughly. So not long after 
the death of Jesus and, um, and Pentecost and the emergence of the church. Uh, uh, you know, this is, this is like the beginnings kind of thing. And we need to remember that um, James is the author, but we're not exactly sure which James is being talked about or attributed authorship to here. Some people say that he, this is somebody writing under the pseudonym James. Um, really, I think the two most viable options, and we just don't know for sure, but the two most viable options would be this is either James, the brother of Jesus. Um, a lot of people hold that view. That would be probably, I think, as, as far as my study and research in this has gone, that would be sort of the consensus view. The greatest consensus would be that this is Jesus's brother, who we, we know from other parts of Scripture did not accept the lordship of, his, uh, of Jesus. So James, the brother of Jesus, rejected Jesus's claims to um, messiahship and to lordship until after Jesus rose from the dead. And so um, this might be Jesus's brother now having radical life transformation, a radically different perspective of how to live in the world. Um, or this could be James, son of Alphaeus, one of the disciples and apostles of Jesus's. We just don't know for sure. And to be honest, it doesn't really matter for um, for understanding the heart and the content of the book. Um, you know, it's an academic thing that some people like to squabble over, to argue over, and there is um, some merit in that in certain places and environments and application. But um, I would say one of those two options is most likely uh, who the author is. James is writing this. He's very specific. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, uh, so the, the Jewish community, but specifically Jewish believers scattered abroad. In our day, we would call those people, that group of people, Messianic Jews. They were um, Jews by ethnicity, by nationality, by people group, but Jews who accepted the Messiahship of Jesus. And so he's writing to his family, his friends, he's writing to uh, his community around him, the people that he's shared life with, the people that he's, um, you know, lived with and endured Rome's occupation with, the people that he has spent his whole life with who, like him, now see Jesus as the Messiah. And um, so that's who he's writing to. And one of the first things that James notes here that's important for us not to just gloss over is James um, says that he is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe some of your translations would use the word servant in there. Um, but the actual Greek word doulos means slave. Um, what it literally means is someone legally owned by someone else whose entire livelihood, and I want you to kind of hear this, whose entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. They belong to their master. So um, for our own reasons, many uh, translators in English have used the word servant because there's such a strong um, 
uh, history, in especially in America, uh, with the word slave. And for various reasons, uh, I think um, English translators have been reluctant maybe to use that because of the connotations that come with that. But James is being very specific, and James is um, not mincing words here. He's not saying, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a servant of Jesus. I, I punch in and I punch out, you know, each day. I show up to work and, and, I, and I, I serve him and do kind of the things he wants. But, you know, then I punch the clock out and, and, and I go home and I, I live sort of my own life and I, I get to pick and choose, um, you know, which, which parts of Jesus's teaching I follow and which ones I don't. I, I get to pick and choose what I, what I adapt or, or what I, um, you know, omit or whatever it is. He's, he's, he's not saying that. He's saying that I am owned by Jesus. And that's actually what scripture witnesses to all throughout. Paul said, the same thing in Romans 1.1, that he was a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul said it again uh, to his letter, uh, to, in his letter to the Philippians, and he said it in Titus, and Peter said it in 2 Peter 1.1, and Jude said it in Jude 1.1. This is the witness of Scripture that Jesus came to be Lord of our lives, not just an add-on to the life we're already living. Jesus did not... Um, invite us to, you know, put an emblem of him on our altar of other gods that we have at home. He's not asking us to, you know, just burn a little bit of incense to him while we do um, to these other gods. He's Jesus's demand of our lives. His call of our lives is that he is Lord and there is no other, that he is master, that he is uh, the one that we say we belong to. And I love how in this definition of slave, I love um, that it adds that that slave, their entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. Jesus, the good news that he came with is that he has created us for a purpose, that he has a vision for your life, he has a vision for my life. And that our purpose is wound up in him. Our purpose is not going to be achieved by, um, by divorcing ourselves from Jesus and living life on our own terms, living life on the terms of um, you know, our culture or whatever it is. Um, the, um, you know, Paul says in Corinthians that uh, we are a slave of Christ Jesus, that if you have submitted your life to Jesus, if you have welcomed him in as Lord of your life, then you're not your own anymore, Paul says. Your body's not your own. Your life is not your own to do whatever you want with. Now we serve um, under the leadership of Jesus. Now we are owned by Jesus. Paul says he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into light. This is not the kind of uh, arrangement that is um, sort of this partial partial casual arrangement, casual Christianity, where, where culturally you might be a Christian because, you know, you live in the West or it's just what your family grew up with or whatever it is. That's not what, what James is talking about here. And that's not the invitation of Jesus. The invitation of Jesus in our life is to be Lord of all of our life, for us to turn our lives over to him um, 
and trust him with every part of it. So to surrender one's life to Jesus is to surrender ownership over our lives. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. This is the foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to willingly surrender the right, to willingly surrender our right to govern our own lives. In following Jesus, we willingly surrender the right to self-determination in our modern sense of the word. So the resounding message of Scripture, the call of Jesus, the call of the um, apostles and disciples in their writing, what we have recorded in Scripture, is that we're not free in the sense maybe we think we are, the way we would use that term in our modern world. Paul wasn't free. Uh, James wasn't free. Peter wasn't free. Um, even Jesus wasn't free in the sense that they were all living under Roman rule. So, um, you know, we love, especially in the culture that I'm from, that I grew up in, in Canada, in the West, we love the freedoms that we have, and I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for, um, I'm so thankful for uh, growing up in a society and culture that has been, by and large, free from conflict in my generation. I grew up, you know, I was born in the late 70s, 1977. So I didn't grow up with war. I didn't grow up under uh, a dictatorial sort of government rule. But many people, uh, even presently right now on the earth, that's their reality. And that was the reality of James. That was the reality of Jesus. And um, James is just acknowledging we're all we're all serving a master. We all are. You are. I am. We are serving a master. The question is, who are we serving? Or what are we serving? What is mastering your life? What dominates your attention? What dominates uh, your, um, your activity? What drives your life? Who dominates or drives your life? None of us are truly autonomous, uh, completely free beings. We are all being mastered by someone or something. And James is saying, I am now a slave of Christ Jesus. The mastership has shifted. And the good news of that is that Jesus is a good master. If we're all being mastered by someone or something, wouldn't we want to be mastered by a master who is good, a master who is filled with mercy and compassion and kindness and patience and love and grace and mercy? Wouldn't, wouldn't we want to serve a master like that? Not a, not a you know, a, a sociopathic, narcissistic, power-hungry person who just wants to extract every ounce of life out of us. Jesus said he came to bring life, to give life, that out of him fountains of living water come. His invitation is that we come under his lordship in his rule in our life, 
And for me, that is a, I'm, I'm glad, I willingly and gladly do that because there is no one better to lead my life. I've done a mess of it when I've tried to lead on my own. Lord knows the culture has done a mess when I have given my life over to the things of the culture around me. I'm not, I don't want to give my life to um, any government or any human leader. I want to give my life to Jesus. And this concept is, um, it prevails through the New Testament, that we're not our own. And James is saying, look, I'm not doing this thing on my own. I'm not the master of my own fate. I'm not the captain of my own ship here. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And um, that concept also was present in the Old Testament. The picture in the Old Testament of, uh, you know, being a slave of Yahweh, a slave of God, was that of being a trusted official or an envoy of the kingdom of Yahweh. So James is opening with a declaration that he is fully submitted to the authority of God and Jesus in his life. James's concern is not just that we agree with Jesus and believe he is Lord. It's now that that reality works itself out into how we live in our everyday life. So James is saying, look, like the litmus test for your life is not just that you intellectually agree with Jesus about his claims or about the claims of Scripture, but that those have such a, um, a prevailing impact on your life that you actually begin to embody and live those out, that those have directional control in your life, that those are the things that determine your purpose, your livelihood. That's what James is saying. So we may not be free in the sense that we think we would like to be, but our master is good. He's loving, kind. We don't serve a tyrant who views us as a commodity to be exploited. Those are all the other masters that are out there. They're all around us. They want to extract your money from you extract your attention, extract your devotion, extract your energy. They want to exploit you and consume everything about you. Jesus said, I didn't come to extract your life out of you. I came to give you life. So you're serving a master today. And the question I have for you, just as we even pause for a moment to reflect on this, is... Who or what is that master that you're serving? Jesus is a master who's good. Jesus is a master who created you with a purpose and a calling. Jesus is a master who came to serve and submit to every experience and reality we face. This is the thing. We are serving a master who doesn't sit on an, uh, you know, up in an ivory tower and shout demands down at us. We serve a master who came, who humbled himself, came to this, uh, you know, the, the dirt of the earth and came and submitted himself to every human experience. That's what we're told in scripture. That's what we're told through 
uh, the Gospels through the book of Hebrews that Jesus submitted himself in humility to walking through every human experience, the the anxiousness that you feel that grips you at times, the loss that you've experienced, the hurt that you've encountered, the trauma that you've been through in your life, the, the, the feeling of overwhelm in your life, the loss of control, the, the rejection that you've experienced, the pain that you've experienced, the emotional anguish you've experienced, the, the pain in your body that you've experienced. Jesus walked through all of it. He did it willingly because he wanted to be able to identify with us. He wanted to be able not to master as a lord in an ivory tower, but lead as a servant, be a person that that can identify with everything we experience in life. The good news about Jesus is he's a master who knows what it's like to be you. He's a master who enters into your suffering and into your grieving and into your sorrow and into your loss and into your pain. He doesn't run from it. He doesn't, um, he doesn't create a barrier between himself and you with that. He's a master who enters into that. He knows what it's like to feel and experience the things you do, and he invites you to turn over those things of your life to him, to carry them with you and for you. That's the kind of invitation Jesus offers, and that's what James is saying. He is worthy of being my master. I'm worthy. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm not, ex- yes, I am excited. I'm okay with saying Jesus I'm a slave to you. I'm happily a slave of yours, Jesus, because I trust you. On the other hand, Scripture tells us that Satan, his kind of mastery over people is one that comes to steal and kill and destroy. So you're serving a master. The question is, who or what is it? Like, honestly... That's something that we all need to process and reflect on. Honestly, who or what is that? James barely gets three or four words into this letter to his friends, and he's establishing this foundational principle right off the start. You are uh, walking through the experiences of your life. His friends were living through Roman occupation in the first century, they were they were um, Messianic Jews. They believed in Jesus, and because of their allegiance to Jesus, they endured persecution. They were uh, taken from their homes. They were taken from the places that they um, that they uh, their cultural practices, the food they ate, the things they experienced. They were they were taken from all of that. And we're now living dispersed, you know, separated from um, the security that they grew up in uh, with community around them. And James is saying, look, there are many things that will want to master you, to be master over your life. James is saying, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. The question for us is who is our master or what is master 
over us. These Jewish Christians uh, living outside of Jerusalem that he's writing to, James goes on to describe them in a few ways throughout this book. Number one, they were poverty-stricken because um, they were being cheated by wealthy landowners. They were experiencing economic suffering and persecution because of their allegiance to Jesus. Uh, we see that in James 5, 1 to 6. Um, they were taken to court by their persecutors. They were discriminated against by their fellow believers. There was fighting and discrimination going on inside their community, and they often lacked sufficient food or clothes. These are some of the descriptors James gives of the trials and testing and persecution they were under. They were not tourists visiting another country. They didn't, uh, they didn't book the five-star all-inclusive in the Mayan Riviera in Mexico. They were not just kicking it on a beach somewhere. They weren't tourists. They were homeless. They'd lost their language, their food, their customs, their security, their comfort. They'd lost all of that. They um, had a sense of, not a sense, the reality of being homeless. And, uh, you know, with everything that's going on in the world today, everything politically, economically, um, the wars that are taking place, the conflicts that are brewing, and and the the just even the... The, the realities of what we've walked through in the last few years with the pandemic, the, the loss of trust in our neighbors and uh, suspicion over the decisions that others have made and how we've processed the realities of life very differently often. Many of you probably feel disoriented and homeless in your own country, in your own neighborhood. The last few years have uh, taken a tremendous toll on many of you, many of us. I would include myself in that. And in some ways, we're living in an environment where we too might feel disoriented and homeless. The question that James is attempting to answer is, how do I live in that reality and follow Jesus faithfully? So these pressures that this community were under that he's writing to, his friends, his neighbors, his family, um, uh, the pressures that they were under were manifesting themselves in a few ways. Number one, they were manifesting themselves in strained relationships within their community, within their church. There was backbiting and dissension, verbal outbursts and discrimination going on. And also these pressures were manifesting in compromise, in convictions with the world around them. They were compromising. They were giving in to the pressure of life externally, and they were giving in to the pressures of what was going on internally within their own community. Um, Dallas Willard once said something similar to this. I'm paraphrasing this, but he once said, the test of how we follow Jesus is whether we spontaneously love our enemies. And I would say, um, and add to that in the context of James, the test of how we follow Jesus is whether we spontaneously 
respond to testing, crisis, and confrontation with peace and patience, joy and kindness. The test of our maturity, the formation of our lives into the image of Jesus is whether we spontaneously respond with the markers of God's character, his fruit, Galatians 5. Do we spontaneously respond with love and patience and mercy and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, self-control? Is that the spontaneous response to crisis and to pressure and to uh, the realities of life? This is a question that James is, um, he's going to be speaking to throughout the course of this book that we are reading. Really, um, James is helping pastor his friends helping pastor the communities that he's grown up around, the people he's grown up around. He's helping pastor them through this question, how do I live in a Roman Hellenistic culture, a culture driven by materialism, pleasure, power, and selfish individualism? How do I live in that and be faithful to Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus in the midst of all of that. Um, just a little bit of historical context. I think it's actually very important for us as we look at James. Uh, the world that James lived in was, was radically shaped and formed by Greek Hellenism. Um, and, um, you know, it, in around three, the mid 300s before Christ, B, BCE, Alexander the Great conquered much of the known world in his day. And um, he introduced Hellenistic, which just means Greek, Hellenistic culture and governance and society in the places that he had conquered in this ginormous portion of the known world at that time. And, and one of the things that Alexander the Great realized is I, I can't sustain... Um, holding power over, you know, this large expanse of newly conquered land by, by using brute force or by military power. There has to be another mechanism that I use. And Alexander um, basically said, look, uh, we're not going to do this by force. We don't need to do this by force. What we need to do is give these people um, a gospel to live for, a gospel that would would um, would create subservient people who would willingly submit to the leadership of Greece. And that word for gospel in the Greek, euangelion, is not unique to Scripture, and uh, the Scripture writers didn't come up with that word. That word was used for hundreds of years before Scripture was ever written. And that so that good news that Alexander brought to the world that he conquered was this. Um, we're taking um, the gods out of the center of your life and we're putting you there. So this gospel that he brought was now you are the most important uh, reality of your life. What you want and what you need are most important to us as a society. So our focus 
um, is going to be on you, on your security, on your livelihood, on your pleasure, on your wants, on your desire, on uh, what you define to be the purpose of your life. This was the gospel that Alexander the Great brought to the people. He said, look, this is not about serving the gods anymore. It's about serving you. He didn't totally remove the gods from uh, society. He just moved them out of the center onto the periphery. So the gods were taken from the center and man was put there in their place. So the gospel of the Hellenistic culture that James grew up in that was all around him, the Romans had kind of, they had um, conquered in uh, Greece and had power, but the the culture of Hellenism was thriving and strong in James's time, in Jesus's time as well. So the gospel of this culture um, was the good news that the Greeks were creating a new world and you were the center of it. You um, were uh, the most important component of it, making sure that you were satisfied, that your desires were met, that your life um, had meaning and purpose and fulfillment as you determined those things to be. So the Greeks made their worldview all about me. Uh, you know, the Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. That would have been probably their mantra. It was no longer about what the gods wanted, but about my comfort, my leisure, my luxury, my security, my wishes, and my desire. This is the, this is the atmosphere that James grew up in. This is the the water that he's swimming in. And this is the reality of um, that surrounded him and all of the friends that he's writing to. This whole community he's writing to was steeped in this cultural idea that the meaning of life, the purpose of your life is to have your desires and wants and needs met. And Alexander the Great did it through four primary mechanisms. And basically, again, he said, we don't need a military presence. Uh, we don't need power militarily to keep um, you know, things intact. We can do it through these four things. The first one was education. If we can uh, educate and indoctrinate the mind. The second one was healthcare, providing a dependence on... Uh, on Greece, on the government for safety. The third was entertainment. They shaped compliance in their culture through the pursuit uh, and the gratification of pleasure and desire. They, um, education, sorry, um, entertainment uh, became a, a dominating, preoccupying reality in their lives. And number four, athletics. They cultivated competition. And, and I want you to hear this, tribal identity through sports, through athletics. So this was how they ruled of, you know, vast portions of the known world. What they did was tug 
at everyone's desire for selfish ambition, leisure, security, and pleasure. Alexander the Great knew that that was more powerful, more potent than military power or force. And um, if, if some of that, you're hearing that and you're going, man, those things seem familiar. Yeah, guess what? We still live steeped in that cultural um, atmosphere, in those prevailing, those are the key values of the culture we live in the 21st century in the midst of. And so this was all around uh, James. He grew up steeped in this, and this was the dominant force of culture around um, these persecuted and dispersed Messianic Jews that he is writing to. And so, yeah, Rome was in power, but the cultural values of Hellenism were in full force in James's life, and they're in full force in our time, too. We live in a culture shaped by the pursuit of pleasure and entertainment. Our worldviews are shaped through entertainment. You know, growing up in the 80s, my, my worldview, I, I mean, in some ways I'm ashamed to admit this, but it's true. My worldview was shaped by the movies that I watched. My worldview was shaped by Top Gun, for instance. My worldview was shaped by the idea of American military power and dominance in defeating um, their enemies. My, that's, that, those, like, your worldview, my worldview, they're shaped through entertainment. They're shaped through athletics. They're shaped through our education, our higher education systems. They're shaped also through a dependence on government for the necessities of life. These are the things that hold people together, whole um, massive portions of our society and our culture are held together by these, and that, that was the same in James's time. Okay, so the culture surrounding James is a Hellenistic culture. By the way, that has nothing to do with hell. Um, that's actually just referencing the Greek culture that's around James. It is steeped in Hellenism, and that Hellenism is putting... Um, a strain on how people live out and walk out their faith. In part B, we're going to uncover some of the responses of James's Jewish friends and family, the community around him, the ways that they dealt with the influence of Hellenism in their lives, the way that they attempted to walk with God in the midst of that culture. So we'll see you for part 1B in the next episode.